Father, we love you, Lord, and we thank you for fellowship. And we thank you, Lord, that our time together is not based on a time schedule. We are here in fellowship, in the presence of your Spirit, and just desiring to hear from you. And so, Father, as I pray before I pray again, would you trim the fat off of this teaching and let the meat and the protein and the truth and the profoundness of it truly sink into our hearts and our minds and help us to hear from you this morning, Lord, and let all things stand aside. Jesus, we pray that you would be honored as we seek you in your word by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 11, verse 55 Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That He will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where He was, He was to report it so that they might seize Him. This is now the third Passover that John specifically mentions. Now there's some dis- debate and disagreement in, among commentators as to whether there's four Passovers in John or three. I think there's three. Three that he specifically, specifically literally mentions. John chapter 2 verse 13, he mentions the Passover. Again in John chapter 6 verse 4, he will mention the Passover. And finally here in John 11:55, he mentions it a third time. But what catches my attention here is the way it's phrased every time he says it. If you go back and look in John 13, John 6, 4, and John 11:55, and compare them in each and every one, he says, the Passover of the Jews, or the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. The Passover was near. The Passover was near. The Passover was near. There is an insistent nearness in the Gospel of John from early on. A reminder of the immediacy of what Jesus came to do. That at that point when Jesus' ministry began, they were very near to the offer of salvation. Midway into the ministry, as the next Passover came, they were that much more near the sacrifice that Jesus would provide to save the people. And here in John chapter 11, we are more near than we have ever been. Just as Paul would say, we are nearer now than we were when we first believed. Which is a great thought. Simple, that's true. Of course we're nearer now than when we first believed. But but the marvel of that thought is that we are near. That we are close to that time. The next move of God on His prophetic calendar. But the Passover, the Passover itself, became the fulfilled uh, feast of the Passover lamb, of, of Jesus, as Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 5-7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, that is made sinless by the blood of Christ, for, Paul says, Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. The Passover of the Jews was near. And this final Passover is now very near. We have come to what I would call the tipping point of Jesus' life and ministry. We lean out this morning in this teaching on the precipice of the final week of His life before the crucifixion. The Sanhedrin had officially issued a warrant for his arrest. Should anybody see him, know where he is, he was to be arrested. It's actually amazing that he went through the entire week without an arrest. But they had to get him out on his own in a hidden place where there could be no uprising from the crowd. No debate about 
pulling him in. And all the early Passover crowds now are teeming in Jerusalem with anticipation for Jesus' arrival. That's the big talk at Passover of this particular year. Some were excited for good, some for ill. And some just out of pure curiosity, and I think how little has changed in 2,000 years. Some are excited, looking for Jesus coming for good, some for ill, and some just are curious. And I pray all will hear the gospel of His glory. Well, continuing on now in chapter 12, we find that Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. We talked about that last week. So they made Him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with Him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of His disciples, who was intending to betray Him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and they came, not only for Jesus' sake, but also that they might see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Now, Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9, you might want to jot that down. And Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13, share the same story. This is one of the select few that John repeats. Matthew shared, Mark shares, and now John shares it as well, a third time, and for good reason. A dinner party is being held in honor of Jesus. In fact, it's kind of a two-hero party. It's a celebration of resurrection. Jesus is there, and Lazarus is there. I think one of the more marvelous verses of Scripture, easily overlooked, is the one that says, Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Kicking back after resurrection. Just back from vacation, you might say. And here's Jesus. And they're having a dinner party, a celebration of friends in a home. You know the type, the the social interaction on a casual, laid-back evening among friends. Peaceful, joyful, encouraging. What a way for Jesus to start that final week. He got to start it with friends. And to be with those who loved Him. And those who would actually show that love to Him. So He's back in Bethany. After that brief hiatus, you know that prior to coming to resurrect Lazarus, He was hanging out in Bethany beyond Jordan. About 25 miles east of Jerusalem. And then after that, after the resurrection, He he moved to about 15 miles north of Jerusalem in a city called Ephraim. And he stayed there with his apostles until this moment when he finally comes back down to Bethany because the Passover was near. Servant-hearted Martha is there. She's dishing up. I love the fact that Martha's still serving. I don't think it's a problem for her. I think Jesus made a little course correction in her heart and she's still serving because that's her gift set. That's what Martha was created to do. 
But I think she's doing it with right heart. I can't say for sure, but Jesus loves her, so it really doesn't matter. But here comes Mary with, the Bible says, a pound of pure nard. Now it's a Roman pound, so it's actually 12 ounces of an expensive perfume, possibly her dowry, which I'll explain in a minute. And she takes this, and we're told by Matthew and Mark, it's in an alabaster jar. She breaks the jar open and begins to anoint Jesus. And again, I think the whole evening must have been welcomed by Him. You know, a sweet calm of casual friendship before the storm of confrontation. The insincere inspections, the false accusations, and finally, the cruel crucifixion of that next week. And so the friends are there and they're reclining around the table and Martha's bringing in food and suddenly Mary upsets the catering cart with this this interesting anointing. She anointed the anointed one. Christos in the Greek, Mashiach in the Hebrew, the anointed one, you Bible students know, and now Mary is anointing the one who is anointed for this great task. And Matthew and Mark tell us that she not only anointed his feet, But she anointed his head as well. So get that picture. She comes in. She first pours it on Jesus' head. It begins dripping down his beard. And then she anoints his feet. and begins wiping his feet with her hair. It's it's a marvelous moment. And we're told that Jesus said, verse 7, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, for you always have the poor with you. But you do not always have me. Why does John share this story yet again? Why a third retelling of the same story that Mark told and Matthew told? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, he does it in memoriam. In memoriam. You see, whether Mary fully understood or not what she was doing, in that moment... The dinner party took on the air of a pre-humus memorial, as opposed to a post-humus memorial. She offers a memorial to Jesus before his death. Matthew 26:14. Jesus said, "When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial." Mark 14:8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Did Mary know what she was doing? Was she aware of of her behavior, of how amazing it was, of what she was actually preparing Him for? The truth is, I don't know, but when you do whatever you do out of love for Jesus, you might not always know the why. You don't have to. But if it's love for Jesus that motivates you, you must do what He leads you to. And one reason I know John repeats the story is that Jesus immediately declared another memorial. He said in Mark 14, 9, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. So John's keeping that promise. And so are we this morning. We pause yet again. We've actually studied this story. Two other times, in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14. We've covered it, we've looked at it. I almost skipped over it in my studies this last week. I thought, well, we've looked at that. And then I remembered, wherever the gospel is preached, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. So this morning, we pause just for a moment in memory of Mary, who showed a great affection for Jesus. 
Here at the end of the age, 2,000 years later, my friends, she's still being spoken of. Just as the Gospel said, just as Jesus said she would, in memoriam, Mary's love of Jesus. But there's a second reason that John adds this story, repeats this story, it's in comparison. In comparison. Because we learn some things about Judas here that we did not learn from Matthew or Mark. John, having pondered it, having thought it through, having a long time to consider everything that had really taken place, gives us a little bit more. And as the fragrance of Mary's faith filled the house with sweetness, it filled the heart of Judas with bitterness. And what the Holy Spirit here does for us in John chapter 12 is compare and contrast the tenderness of Mary and the treachery of Judas. How much darker is the darkness when a bright light is compared against it? How much darker those dark corners? When the darkness of Judas is juxtaposed with the brightness of Mary, Judas is that much more sinister. Mary here displays a a powerful love. Judas, a pathetic loathing. Mary sees the worth of the person of Christ. Judas only sees the value of cold, hard denarii. And that's the part of the story we want to focus on today. We're going to turn our attention to Judas and consider something of this man. Look again at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, note that. The intention was already in place. It wasn't anything that happened at this dinner party that caused him to do it. I believe the last time we studied this, perhaps it was in Mark, I may have even made the, com- the comment that some have thought that what happened here was the last straw for Judas. You know, the breaking of this fine perfume that could have been sold. I mean, the, the, the waste, the sheer waste. Just finally drove him over the edge and so he decided right then and there to go betray Jesus. According to John, that's not true. According to John, the intention was already firmly in place. Judas is at that party already in conspiracy. And he said, verse 5, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, John tells us, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. That's, That's amazing. Not only did Jesus invite him to be an apostle, but he handed the money box over to the thief. You think Jesus was unaware of it? Jesus who knew the heart of all men? And yet he gives it to him. Here you go. Money bags. You're the guy. And he was a thief. And therefore, Jesus said, let her alone. He said, the poor you will always have with you. You do not always have me. Now, I love what Spurgeon said about this. He said, I shall always feel obliged to Judas for figuring up the price of that box of costly nard. He did it to blame her, but we will let his figure stand and think all the more of her. I should never have known what it cost, nor would you either, if Judas had not marked it down in his ledger. Judas says, why wasn't this sold for 300 denarii? 
Judas knows his fine marketables. He's got an eye for the expensive. The shrewd thief pinpoints the price of the perfume. Now, we're told in the Greek that it's pure nard, nard, nardos in the Greek, from the spike of the fragrant plant, the nardos plant, on the Ganges River and in the Ganges River hills there in East India. That's where it came from. Highly expensive perfume. Highly expensive. And oftentimes in the first century, it was a way that parents would invest in their daughter's dowry. They would have a sum that they could finally invest in. Rather than than let it go to waste or let it be used up, they would buy a bottle of this costly perfume and set it aside. Because at the time of the daughter's marriage, they could then turn around and sell it. And like withdrawing money, they could give the money as a dowry for the daughter. That's why we think it's possible this was Mary's dowry. Why else would Mary have a, a, a bottle of perfume that was worth 300 denarii? Well, what's 300 denarii? That's an entire year's wages. A year's worth of salary in one little bottle. Two Greek words describe it as costly and pure. Costly is obviously just means costly. <laughs> Great price. Expensive. Pure is an interesting word. It's pistikos. Pistikos in the Greek, and it means genuine and authentic, and it comes from the root word pistis, which is faith. It's the word for faith. And it makes perfect sense to me because faith is genuine. Faith is authentic. Faith is never religious. Faith is not going through the motions. Faith is not just action without thought. Faith is the true expression of the heart. It is genuine. It is authentic. And Peter would say, 1 Peter 1.7, the proof of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which is perishable. Your faith is invaluable. You can't even calculate the value of faith to the Lord. And so this act on Mary's part was a costly but genuine act of faith. But Judas is there looking to cash in. And sometimes I have to pause and ask myself, am I? Are you? Are we looking to cash in? That is, do we place a high value on material wealth and security? Is that where you feel secure? Paul told Timothy, and I will just pass it along to you, 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So Paul says, young Pastor Tim, warn them. Warn them against the desire for more. It's interesting, he doesn't say warn them against wealth, warn them against riches. He says warn them against the heart that chases after those things. And I would advise and say to each and every one of us that we just be content. Content with what the Lord has blessed us with. Some have been blessed with more. Some have been blessed with less. And yet, the Lord looks at our lives and says, this is what I have chosen for you. This is what I know is right for you. Be content with that. Be thankful for what He's given. We still are among the richest people in history. Every last one of us. 
But this is one of the motivating factors of the betrayal, the subsequent betrayal of Jesus by Judas. This, this desire for more, this, this seeking as to what he can get out of the situation. And ironically, Matthew and Mark tell us why Iscariot was indignant. Mark 14.4 says, Some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? Now until John writes his gospel, Matthew and Mark didn't mention that it was Judas who was leading the bandwagon. That, that, that he was the ringleader. That Judas was the one who was concerned about the waste. We get to John and discover, oh, it was Judas after all. Why is that ironic? Because Jesus ascribed it to Judas later on. That Judas here would say, what a waste! And on that night of his betrayal, Jesus would be in prayer. John 17.12 Praying while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. Apollia. Waste. The son of waste. So that the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus calls Judas the son of waste. Judas who was looking for material wealth in every which way he could find it. Whether it was ripping off the Lord or looking at this wasted bottle of perfume. Judas wanted more. And Jesus said, that's a waste. And your life, his life became a waste. What does that mean so that the scripture would be fulfilled? Jesus said... I didn't lose any of them except Him. So that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. But the life of Judas became a tragic waste because, a couple things to note, number one, he totally undervalued Jesus. He didn't see the value in the Christ. Why this waste? This should have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. Please understand this. The value of Jesus far surpasses anything you can give to the poor. No amount of food, no amount of shelter, no amount of clothing is ever enough to save someone from the poverty of the heart. You can give until you're blue in the face. You can join all kinds of of communities, philanthropic clubs, and try to give, 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 give. But if you're not giving Jesus, you are only giving temporarily because that person will still be lost. What is the greater value? A gift of eternity or a gift of getting through the day today? And Jesus is so clear about this. The poor you'll always have with you. You don't always have me. What is the higher value? Jesus is. He always is. And this is not to say, please understand, it's not to say that the poor are not our concern. Of course we have a concern. Of course we're called to the compassion of Christ. We look at Jesus. He was compassionate for the poor and the downtrodden and the broken. For everyone who had a need. He saw the need and He met the need. Of course He did. But the question is one of value. You know, it's it's even a debate in the church between the social gospel... And the actual gospel. You know, the church that would say we need to be all about the feeding of the poor. No, we need to be all about the gospel of which feeding the poor is a part. But the gospel, the truth of Jesus, man, don't undervalue Him. Everything else I have is going to perish. Everything else. 
But if I offer Jesus, if someone receives Jesus, that's eternal. And that's what causes Paul to say in Philippians 3.7, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. That's the total value. That's all I'm looking for. That's what I'm going to invest my life in, says the Apostle Paul. Judas undervalued Jesus. Judas walked with him for three years, ministered with him, saw him in action, heard his teachings, and never came to value Christ for who he was, for who he is. And so his life became a waste. He also treacherously undermined Jesus. Go back up and look at verse 4. Again, Judas, who was intending to Betray him. That's amazing to me. I don't know when the intentions were set in place. The Bible doesn't tell us. When he finally came to the point where he knew he was going to do this. He was going to find a way to take out Jesus. But we know by six days before the last Passover, he had already been thinking about it. It was already there. He's already been scheming, already planning, already on a collision course with destiny. And what's interesting is this is the only time we see his dark plans bubble up. The only time we get a hint of the darkness of his heart before he betrays Jesus. If you go back through all the gospel accounts and you look up Judas and and try to see what he's about, what he's doing, you never really, you don't see much about him at all, really. But you certainly don't see him doing anything untoward, anything negative, anything unseemly or indecent until this night. And all of a sudden, it kind of comes out. We see him for who he is. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile a man. And I want to pause to note this. If there is a darkness in the heart, if the heart is bad, it's going to come out. It's going to bubble up. You can't keep that stuff down. You cannot keep the heart under wraps. Oh, you can try. Judas obviously tried to keep his heart under wraps tried to fool everyone and did a pretty good job because even at the Last Supper, the rest of the apostles had no idea Judas was the betrayer. Obviously, he had put on a good show. But ultimately, the truth begins to surface. It always does. And with Judas, Jesus knew it would. Now, there are a couple things I said that if you caught them, they may have made you uncomfortable. One of them. I said Judas was on a collision course with destiny. The other one is what Jesus said in John seventeen twelve: Not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Put that together. He was on a collision course with destiny because scripture had laid out ahead of time that he was going to betray Jesus. Sounds like he didn't have a choice. Sounds like he was stuck with the job. It sounds like Judas was chosen in all eternity to be the pinpoint of evil in this world. 
And that doesn't really seem fair, does it? I mean, how could God do that? I'm glad He didn't choose me, but thinking it through, how could a loving, gracious, compassionate God choose a man for destruction? Now, Calvinism would say that's the deal. If you happen to have a Calvinist background, or that's where you stand, and I I completely reject this notion, my friends. And that is that ahead of time, God has singled out those who will be saved and those who will be condemned. That you happen to be here this morning simply because you're one of the chosen few. But there are also another group of chosen who are going to go to hell, and it's just the way it is. God decided that a long time ago. I reject that notion. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That He gives to us the choice. That to each and every human being walking the face of the planet in all of history, God says, I would have you choose Me. I'm going to express My love to you, but I want you to express your love to Me. I want you to make the choice. Yeah, but Rick, doesn't God already know everything we're going to choose? Of course He does. He's sovereign. He's God. But that doesn't mean He takes the choice from you. Well, what about Judas? Aye, there's the rub. There's the conundrum. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, back to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Ironically, verse 66. John 6, 66. As a result of this, many of His disciples withdrew and were not walking with Him anymore. You may know the context. Jesus had just fed the 5,000 the day before. On this particular day, He did this marvelous teaching about the bread of life. I am the bread which comes down from heaven. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you have every part of me. But if you don't, then you can't be part of me. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it kind of freaks some people out. And so there were those who were leaving, actually, the way John describes it, in droves. Many of his disciples, that is those who were following him, withdrew. So Jesus said in verse 67 to the 12, You do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Note this, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. The word yet is not there. I think the translators are trying to soften it just a tad. Take yet out. Did I not myself choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus said, he chose Judas. And then he calls him a diabolos. Demonically inspired, satanically driven, and ultimately, as we will see, Satan-possessed. Judas would not be demon-possessed. He would be Satan-possessed on the night that he betrayed Jesus, where Satan finally and completely takes over. But this is the Judas conundrum. Why did Jesus choose him? Why would Jesus choose him? 
And let me again quickly dispel the misguided notion that Judas betrayed Jesus because he was trying to force the kingdom. That's one of those thoughts that's out there somewhere. That what he was really trying to do was, was give Jesus a little push. You know, into his kingdom rule. Jesus is our guy, but he's not moving fast enough for me. So I'm going to set up this thing. I'll take the fall. I'll be the bad guy. So that Jesus is forced to come out and be the king that I know he's supposed to be. And then it all went horribly wrong. Guys, John's record blows that idea out of the water. That is not a biblical perspective. That Judas tried it. But it didn't go the way he had hoped it would ultimately go. And Jesus ended up crucified. And so Judas, in his despair, hung himself because his plans really went awry. That's not the deal. John clearly tells us that Judas's motives were misguided. They were menacing. They were wicked. They were self-serving. They were evil. It's like saying Hitler was trying to do the right thing for Germany. Well, you really can't blame him. You know, he was looking out for the German people. He was trying to restore their greatness, their economy. Really? How can you say that? And it's the same to say this of Judas. So, again, why did Jesus choose him? And I struggle with this question. I kind of thought at the beginning maybe I had an answer for it, but I wasn't sure how to get there. And then sometimes when you're thinking through a theology, you've got to be careful trying to get there because you can bend Scripture to your will. That's not a good idea either. And I'll tell you what, the Lord tapped my heart and He reminded me of something He's been showing me all the way through John. Here's the deal. Listen up. Do not miss this. The answer to this question is found in the nature of Jesus. The answer to this or any difficult question we have when it comes to God is found in the person of Jesus. If you're struggling with something that you don't understand theologically or doctrinally or biblically, if you will for a moment step back and ask, how do I see this in terms of Jesus? I think you're going to find your answer. And we do right here. I remind you that John did not write his gospel to talk about Judas. He didn't write the gospel to talk about Mary or Martha or Lazarus for that matter. John doesn't even name himself. John wrote this gospel because it's all about Jesus. And so when we're confused, if we go to Jesus, if we look to Him, if we consider His nature, if we think about what do we know of Him and what the Scriptures tell us of Him, we will find our answer. And I'll show you that this morning. Because you see, I see divinity, Jesus' divinity, in the choosing of Judas. A couple things to note. Number one, there is a prophetic reason that Jesus chose Judas. Skip ahead in John to John 13. John 13. A prophetic reason that Jesus chose Judas. Verse 21, Jesus has just finished washing the disciples' feet, which, by the way, included the feet of Judas. And when Jesus had said this, He became troubled in spirit and testified. And He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray Me. 
The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one He was speaking. See how good Judas was? (laughs) None of them knew. Verse 23. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of His disciples whom Jesus loved. We believe that was John. And so Simon Peter gestured to Him and said to Him, Tell us who it is of whom He's speaking. And He, leaning back, thus on Jesus' bosom, said to Him, Lord... Who is it? Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Satan possession. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have in need of the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Now, consider the scene. This is different now than the scene six days before. as They were reclining casually around the table. Now they're reclining again. It's how they ate. They're reclining around what we believe was called a triclinium, That's a three-sided table, low to the ground, reclining on pillows, four people roughly per side, and you leaned left and ate right. Okay, so lean to your left on a pillow, the next person's leaning to his left, and the next person leaning to his left, and you ate with your right hand, and you could dip in the marshal or drink and use your right hand while you were leaning over to the left, and everybody kind of leaned around the table that way. If you had a left-handed person, it was kind of a conflict because you're leaning this way, they're leaning that way. Who's going to make that work? Right? So that's how they all sat around the table. We're told in verse 23 of John 13, the disciple whom Jesus loved, again, we think that's John, reclined to Jesus' right. So when John is leaning up against the Lord's breast, he leans in this way. Lord, who is it? Who's going to do this? The affection there is amazing. That's another sermon for another time. But the affection and the closeness that John felt for Jesus as he leans up against his Lord and says, who who would do such a thing? Who's going to betray you? And then we're told that Jesus dipped and gave the morsel to Judas. Judas was probably, I can't say absolutely, but probably to Jesus' left, sitting right there in the seat of highest honor. He dipped, he gave it to Judas. And this sharing of the morsel we've talked about before is a symbol of dear friendship. In that moment, Jesus saying to Judas in essence, and I don't think this is a stretch, will you still be my friend? It's come down to this, Judas. Will you take the morsel and be my friend? You've got to make the choice. This is the time. We've been walking this out, Judas. What are you going to do? Judas takes the morsel. His heart goes completely dark and Satan enters. But in that moment, Judas went all in for his satanic mission. And by the way, it's interesting, Satan entered Judas, verse 27 tells us, You might say, that's not fair. Well, just remember, the heart of Judas was already tuned into Satan's frequency long before this. He already had opened the doors wide. That was Judas' choice. 
He didn't have to. He wasn't overcome by satanic power. He invited the enemy. We invite the enemy when we open the doors of our heart to sin. We say, come on in. That's your choice. He can't come in unless you invite him. It's kind of like a vampire, you know. (laughs) Kind of have that invitation. No, that's actually a really good example. A demon at the door of your heart. I can't come in unless you invite me in. Come on in. That's what Judas did. Same thing will happen with Antichrist. Who ironically, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2.3 calls the son of perdition, just like Judas. Antichrist will become Satan-possessed at a certain point in the middle of the tribulation. But this moment in John 13, what we just read, this this story of of the taking of the morsel, the giving of the morsel, Jesus offering friendship uh, one last time, or so it would seem, to Judas. And then Judas filled with the devil and leaving on his mission, this precise moment was given in Bible prophecy. What are you talking about? You might want to jot down in the margin of your Bible right there, Psalm 41, verse 9. Psalm 41.9, which reads as follows. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now listen to that again. Listen to the wording of that. Even my close friend, whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Gang, it was known from long ago that Judas would betray Jesus. It was known from long ago that it would be a friend. Second thing to note, a personal reason. Not only a prophetic reason why Judas is chosen for this, but a personal reason. Who among us has not been betrayed by a friend or a loved one? Who among us hasn't felt the sting of betrayal or hurt in a relationship you think maybe Jesus knows how that feels and in experiencing this one of the most painful things that a human being can experience and that is betrayal of a relationship Jesus felt Jesus knows the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 2 verse 17 he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of all those who are tempted. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. People struggle with that word tempted. Listen, it's parazo in the Greek, and it simply means tried, tested, proven. Jesus was proven in human relationships to be just like us. Tested in the difficulty and the struggle of mankind. Tried by the very betrayal of one whom he loved. And don't miss that. He loved Judas. He loved him. He, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus shared in the same betrayal, the same sting of betrayal that I have felt. That you have felt. In the treachery of a friend. Or... 
sometimes in our own treachery against a friend. That's where we depart from Jesus a bit because He was not treacherous. But I think as much as I have been betrayed, I have at times betrayed. But perhaps this is the most poignant reality in the choosing of Judas that he would be Jesus' friend. That Bible prophecy would not just mark out this man for destruction, but would mark him out as a friend first. And that is so key. And that's the third reason. A patient reason. A prophetic reason, a personal reason, and finally, a patient reason for why Jesus chose Judas. Listen. Judas led that Roman cohort after leaving the apostles there that night and Jesus and going into the dark of night. He went out, got with the Jewish leaders. They got the Romans together. Those Jewish contenders, they all came to Gethsemane. Judas knew that Jesus would be here. He he had gone there many times with Jesus himself. He comes up to Jesus. You know the story. He comes up in the Garden of Gethsemane, sees Jesus, and gives him the kiss of friendship. As one man would give to another man in friendship. Middle Eastern affection. Don't give it to me here. But in Middle Eastern affection there. And yet for Judas, rather than the kiss of a friend, it was the kiss of betrayal. It was a signal to the Romans to arrest that man and listen to what Jesus said in the moment. Matthew 26, verse 50. He said, Friend, what have you come for? Friend, what have you come for? And they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized Him. Heteros is the word. And it means dear friend. It was not a casual dude. Jesus could have said that in the garden. Man, what what are you doing? Dude, what's up? He said, friend. In essence, what are you doing? What are you doing? My dear friend. After all that, friend. After the schemes, friend. After the pilfering, friend. After the contention at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, friend. After the very betrayal itself. I had always thought, just in my mind, the last time Jesus offered friendship was at the Last Supper. No, it wasn't. It was in the garden. As if one final opportunity. Friend, what have you come for? What are you doing? You don't have to walk this out, Judas. Rick, what are you saying? I'm saying, yes, Jesus chose Judas. He chose to pull this man closer than almost any other person in history. He chose to grab hold of the betrayer and pull him close to give him three years of friendship. Three years of discipleship and with it, every last opportunity to choose friendship with Jesus over betrayal. That was Jesus' choice. Judas would make his own choice. But when we look at the prophecy of it, and when we look at the personal betrayal of it, we come down to this amazing patience of God that yes, a friend would betray the Messiah. A man would be in this position of betrayal. What an awful thing. But knowing it was coming, Jesus said, I'm going to give him every chance not to do it. 
I'm going to provide for him every opportunity to know friendship with me and not to betray me. And that's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. He is a friend beyond the end. He is the one whose hand is outstretched to every man, woman, and child who's ever walked the face of the earth. To the very last breath, will you be my friend? Will you join me in friendship? He is still doing the same thing right here to us today. It's why we're still living. Those of you who are in a relationship with Jesus, who are friends of the Lord Jesus, are here to walk in that friendship. And those who have never chosen to receive the offer of friendship, He is still extending it. We remain on planet earth today. The rapture has not happened. The kingdom has not come. Because God is still asking, will you be my friend? Friend, what are you doing? He invites us to follow Him, though I be a devil. He memorializes sweet faith, though I sometimes undervalue it. He offers the morsel, though I might choose the dark night. And at the very last minute, Jesus says, Friend, what have you come for? You see what I mean when I say if we look into the nature of Jesus, we can understand the choices of Jesus. He chose Judas because he loved Judas. Rachel, come on up. We have in the story before us this morning two very different responses to Jesus. Judas, obviously, who betrayed Him. Mary, who gave all she had to Him. And she anointed Jesus, His head, His feet. And John tells us in verse 3 that she did one other thing. She wiped His feet with her hair. And I love that because what does that tell us? That the rest of the evening, the person who smelled the most like Jesus would be Mary. And that's what He invites us to, to to, to smell like Him, to have on our bodies, in our hair, His sweet fragrance. Paul says, we are a fragrance of God to Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, from an aroma from life to life. The aroma of Christ incensed Judas and memorialized Mary. And the question is, which will it be for you? Father, I come praying and asking that you will set our hearts right with you. That every last one of us will know before we walk out of here this morning that we walk as friends of Jesus that we are called into a deep and intimate relationship with You. And Lord, I pray that Your Spirit will be at work. I ask You, Holy Spirit, be at work this morning, all morning long, to draw our hearts to You. Father, for those who have never chosen to be in relationship, I pray that they will not walk out of here without being compelled by the great love of Jesus, whose hands remain outstretched. And Father, I pray for those among us who have had a sense of betrayal in life or perhaps who have themselves been betrayers. I pray that You would forgive us, set our hearts aright, 
and draw us close to Jesus this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Prayer team, come on up. Let's stand and sing together. If you have any need, please come forward.